This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. One of my daughters was pregnant with our first grandchild. And I remember saying to the, the physiotherapist, I've got to be able to hold that baby. It gave me a specific goal to aim for. That's a life goal. That was his life goal. That gave him the will to live. The nurse asked me last week, what motivates you to live? What is your goal in life? I I didn't know she was gonna ask that question. It kind of caught me by surprise. I told her two words. She said, what are they? I said, Jesus Christ. He's my life goal. He's what motivates me to live, to walk in life with him, with Jesus Christ, to serve Jesus Christ to be able to turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. That's my life goal. She wrote on the forum, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the goal or the completion point that God wants us each to have. That's what makes this phrase in verse one so dramatic. In the last days, we're getting to the end of the line. This is chapter four of Micah, which comes to us as like a breath of fresh air. From chapters one and three, it was suffocating. Chapters one and three, it was all about declaring Israel's sins and the judgment for those sins. It was so depressing. But now comes what happens to the Jewish people after the storm has passed. The storm has passed with this period as we're getting to, as it starts off in the last days. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. We've been longing, we've been hoping in this book to come to this chapter because we're waiting. We're waiting for Israel, for the world to come to this place in the future. You know the verse I read, it's on the corner of the United Nations building. They'll beat their their spears into plowshares and so forth, their swords. You know that because that's the goal of the United Nations. That's the longing. Learn war no more as we are in the middle of a Ukrainian war. And if I ask you to think, and then it goes on from there, the last days. And there's something else that's very remarkable in these two verses, first two verses. And sort of an introduction to it, I want you to just think in your mind now of the most famous mountains in the world. What comes to your mind? Just let your mind kind of daydream a little bit, soar over the world like you're in the space shuttle or. I mean, the space station, the International Space Station, just a, and just, just kind of like go around and a little world tour and just think about all the great mountains of the world. And of course, you're going to think of the bold Mount Everest. 
29,029 feet, the graveyard of hundreds of climbers who failed to conquer it. And then maybe you'll think of, uh, of Mount Kilimanjaro. I remember standing at the base of Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, 19,341 feet. Africa's tallest mountain. It's the tallest freestanding mountain, freestanding mountain in the world that has no mountain range. It just boldly comes right up. Or have you been in Japan and you've taken that bullet train from Tokyo down to, down to Osaka? You pass by the pride of Japan, Mount Fuji, 12,388 feet. Or you've been to Disneyland, or maybe you've been to that southern part of, of Switzerland. You've seen Mat the Matterhorn, the Matterhorn with its like pyramid, the jewel of the Swiss Alps. Or every morning I get up in, when in school and I was in high school, we would look out at Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc covering three countries. Italy, France, Switzerland, 15,781 feet. The pearl of the Alps, the European Alps. Those are famous mountains of the world. And then you think about the mountains uh, more. Maybe you think of Mount Rainier, Mount, Mount McKinley, K2, or been Hawaii to Maui, or Ma Mauna Kea, or the Grand Teton, or, the, or, or Mount Ararat, or Mount Olympus, or, or Mount Whitney. And then you think about going over the world, flying over the world, think of the famous mountain ranges, the Alps, the Andes, the Sierra Madres, the Sierra Nevadas, the Denali's, the Pyrenees, the Canadian Rockies, the Colorado Rockies, the Blue Ridges, the Caucasus, all these mountains. And now with all those mountains in your mind, the mountains and the mountain ranges, you've traversed them all over the world. And, and there's a title, there's a title now for one mountain in the world. And that mountain is, in verse two, the title, the mountain of the Lord. Which one of those great mountains? Which one of those great mountains that you just thought about would you crown with the title of verse two, the mountain of the Lord? Which great mountains of those great mountain ranges of the world you would say, this one is verse two, the mountain of the Lord? And the shocking answer is none of them, none of them. If you possessed all the mountains of the world and you wanted to present one mountain to God and say, here, God, here's your mountain. Here's the mountain that should be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. You would present each one of those and with each one, God would say, no, 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 no. And then in frustration, God would say, don't you have another mountain? Another mountain that for me to make, verse two, the mountain of the Lord? Seen is very much like Jesse. Jesse, the father, as Samuel the prophet came to him to find the man who was gonna be the king of Israel, who he was gonna make king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16, 5. 1 Samuel 16, 5. He sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they came that he looked on Eliab, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his statue, because I've refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabed and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. He said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before 
Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, send him, fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. This is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. One by one, Jesse presented his sons, and they were all rejected, and a frustrated Samuel said, don't you have another son? And finally, oh, well, there's David, but he's a squirt. He's a squirt of a son, nothing impressive. And Samuel says, bring him. And God says, that's who I want to be king. And you, like Jesse, you present all the great mountains of the world and many thousands of mountains, and for each one, God keeps saying, no, 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 no. And finally, God, in frustration, would say to you, don't you have another mountain to present to you, to present to me, so that I could make it, verse two, the mountain of the Lord? And you'd remember, oh yeah, there's this one mountain, but it never made the list. And you'd say, there's one mountain, but it's not even... On any of my list, I really wouldn't even call it a mountain. It's just a hill. It's only 2,510 feet. It's really a squirt of a mountain. It's, uh, it's called Mount Zion. And God says, that's it. That mountain that you call a squirt of a mountain, Mount Zion, that will be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. And you and I both would say, Mount Zion? Really? Really, God? You want that Yiddish schmutz? of a hill called Zion to be the most important mountain in the world? The Mount Zion is to be, verse two, the mountain of the Lord? And God would say, that's right. And don't you call my mountain a schmutz. Mount Zion is the most important mountain of the world. Mount Zion is, verse two, the mountain of the Lord. And we'd stand back in shock and we'd say, I guess I really didn't know God. Who is God? Who is God that he should pass up all those great mountains of the world and choose Mount Zion to be the one and only, verse two, mountain of the Lord? And the fact that God chose that title, that little, that title for that little lowly Mount Zion all over all the other mountains of the world, it teaches us so much about God. It teaches us that Jesus is God and Jesus said about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I am meek and lowly in heart. Just like Mount Zion, if it could speak, would say, I am meek and only 2,500 feet, barely to be compared with the class of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. That's why God chose Mount Zion. When Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he didn't come in a great white stallion, but he came Matthew 21, 5, Matthew 21, 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a foal, a colt, the foal of an ass. A young donkey. That's why God chose Mount Zion. The history of God becoming a man named Jesus summed up in Philippians 2, 5, Philippians 2, 5, Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God became a man, a man of no reputation, a servant man, a humble man, a man obedient to death, a man obedient to the crucifixion. God became, Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah 53.3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's why he chose lowly Mount Zion. God became a man who, Isaiah 53.5, Isaiah 53.5, was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. That's why God chose lowly Mount Zion. God became a man who endured the agony of Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 53.6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why God chose lowly Mount Zion. And in this mount, we see a sight that's unbelievable. In verse two, in verse two, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now come many people flowing to the mountain of the Lord in a robe of spotless white, like we just sung, he shall greet me where no tears shall ever fall. And they're coming to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Zion. The scene is wonderful. Just like the, just like the hymn, For All the Saints, which has a stanza that so beautifully captures this scene in verse two. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless hosts, singing to the Father and Holy Ghost, Alleluia, Alleluia. Can't you just picture that? Can't you just see those countless hosts from earth's wide bounds and from ocean's farthest coast? They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to Mount Zion. They're coming to Mount Zion. They're coming. And as they're going, we're marching to Zion. Wonderful, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And as they're coming, they're inviting others to come with them. And as those many people from all over the world are coming to God in Jerusalem, they're coming to a temple. And they're saying, we're going to the temple. And they said, and people said, what's the name of the temple? What's the name of the temple? And they chose a name. They chose a name for the temple. It's the name of God. They chose the name for God that they're coming to. And the name of God, they didn't, they, they didn't just call God the God. We're going to the temple of the God of Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith, they didn't do that. They didn't choose to call God the God of Isaac. We're going to the temple of the God of Isaac. Isaac, the stable man who loved God, they didn't do that. They didn't choose to call God the God of Joseph. Joseph, I love Joseph in the Bible. I was reading that passage when our second born was born. I said, his name shall be Joseph. And it, but it, the faithful servant of God, they didn't choose that. They didn't choose to call God. We're going to the, the, the God of Moses, Moses, the friend of God. They didn't choose that. They chose to call God the God of Jacob, 
Jacob, the rebel who ran away from God? Jacob, the stubborn man? Jacob, the real man of troubles? Jacob, the man who wrestled with God? They chose to call God the God of Jacob because Jacob was also the broken man with his thigh out of joint. Jacob was also the man who clung to God and would not let God go until God blessed him. Jacob was also the one who saw God face to face, and he was saved and named the place for all eternity, Peniel, face of God, as he said, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Of all the people in the Bible, those many nations identified with, it was Jacob, the stubborn man who was broken one night and who became the man who was clinging to God and the man that God saved and the man that saw God. That was who they identified with, Jacob. They will see themselves like Jacob, a rebellious, stubborn man who was broken and saved by God and now clinging to God. And we want to come. They say, we want to come like that man did. We want to come to God like Jacob. We want, we want the God of Jacob. And isn't that a description of all of us? Isn't, it, isn't that a description of all of us, rebellious, stubborn, whom God broke and saved, and now we just cling to Christ? Don't we all do that? Don't we all identify with Jacob? Don't we love to call God the God of Jacob? That's what the nations will say. And when they come to the God of Jacob, they have one desire. Verse two, verse two, he will teach us of his ways. They know they need to be taught. They know they need to learn about God. They need to learn how to live a life of walking with God, how to identify and detect the roots of sin in the heart, how to root out those weeds out of their lives, how to confess their sins, how to be forgiven, how to be cleansed from their sins, how to grow in Christ, how to please God with their lives, how to worship God, how to serve God, how to, how to pray, how to die with a vibrant hope of heaven. I say, we need to learn, we need to be taught. He's gonna teach us, he's gonna teach us. They know they have so much to learn they're coming to God to learn when they say in verse two, in verse two, he will teach us. Woe to the person who thinks he's arrived and is finished with the teaching. Woe to the person who thinks he knows it all and is finished with the learning. Woe to the believer who thinks he's been a Christian for so long, longer than the paint on the wall, that he is, he's heard it all, he knows it all. Woe to the believer who doesn't see that he is in desperate need to learn like all these nations. Woe to the believer who's not teachable. These people, in verse two, they come to God wanting to be taught. And for them, learning is not a sterile memorizing of some cold catechism. For them, learning is not just a memorization of scriptures. For them, there's something very special about their learning, and it's all wrapped up in who's gonna teach them. And they're so excited to learn because of the who's gonna teach them. They say in verse two, verse two, he will teach us the God of Jacob. It makes all the difference in the world to come to the Bible and open it with a prayer that says, Lord Jesus, 
teach me, show me, guide me, instruct me, open my eyes. And then after having been instructed in the Bible, then to pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for showing me, thank you for guiding me. And they come to learn from Christ himself, just like God said that he would do in Proverbs 123, Proverbs 123, turn you at my reproof. I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. And that's where God starts with us, with a reproof. A reproof is God putting his finger in the area of our lives that's not right and needs to be right. And that's what real learning is all about. That's the real value of the Bible. The Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The value of the Bible is doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. Doctrine, what is right. Reproof, what is not right in us. Correction, how we can get right. Instruction, how we can stay right. That's the Bible. And they know what they want to learn from Jehovah Jesus, and it is in verse two, verse two, he will teach us of his ways, of his ways. They want to know the ways of God. There's two things you can learn about God. It's brought out to us in Psalm 103.7, Psalm 103.7. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. It's one thing to learn about the acts of God. How many plagues were there? Which ones came first? Can you name them all in order? Can you recite the words, all the books? It's one thing to, to learn about the acts of God. Israel only knew the acts. That's what God did. The act of God when he created man. The act of God when he destroyed the world in a flood. The act of God when he gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. That's where, those were God's acts. That's what he did, and Israel knew that. But no, Moses went beyond that, and he knew the ways of God. That's the why God did what he did. The way of God was why God created man, why God made you and me, which is to have a close union with him through Jesus Christ as our bridge to God. The ways of God are why God destroyed the world in a flood. That's the reason why God was so hard on sin, shows how holy God really is. The ways of God is why he gave the law to man, that's the purpose of the law, to show us how far we are from God and how much we need Jesus Christ. These people were not coming to learn what God did. They were coming in verse two, he will teach us of his ways. And all these people, they were coming with a commitment also, and the commitment was, in verse two, we will walk in his ways. They're wanting a change in their lives they're tired of a life of being far from God. They're tired of loneliness. They're tired of that underlying fear of what's gonna happen to them next in life. They're tired of the uncertainty of whether they're really gonna go to heaven or not. They're tired of suppressing the guilt and the shame for what they know they've done that's wrong. They're tired of uh, restlessness no peace inside. They have temporary pleasures, yeah, they have temporary thrills. 
They have excitement, but deep down there's no real peace. It's just this restlessness, and they're tired of it. They feel like the restless sea of Isaiah 57.20, Isaiah 57.20. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. They're tired of it. They're tired of the no peace. They're tired of faking it by saying, I'm good. I'm good with God, when deep down they really know that they don't know what God thinks about them. They're tired of their mind that loves sin and, and, and that passive aggressive war against God. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.